This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Fantasy. I'm your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with Alex Harrow about her novel, Starling House. The novel's namesake, Starling House, is an infamous old mansion in the otherwise unremarkable town of Eden, Kentucky. It has haunted the dreams and thoughts of our protagonist, Opal, a reluctant resident of Eden, who is focused on building a better life for her younger brother, Jasper one that would get him out of both the motel room where they live and out of Eden entirely. When the elusive Arthur Starling, the last remaining of his name, offers Opal a job caring for the manor, she knows that it's a risk, but one that she'll have to take. Alex Harrow is an American writer from Kentucky, living in Virginia. In addition to Starling House, she is also the author of the novels The Ten Thousand Doors of January and The Once in Future Witches, as well as a variety of shorter fiction. She is a best-selling New York Times author, has won both the Hugo and British Fantasy Awards, and she is here with us now. Hi, Alex. It's great to have you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to start off uh, by talking about the decision to write a contemporary fantasy. This is your first novel that's set in the present day. It's also set in a state where you grew up. So I was just wondering a little bit about that process and that decision. Yeah, I mean, when I talk about these choices, I make them sound much more clear cut than they are in the moment, right? Because everything is sort of being hodgepodge together as you invent a novel. Um, But retroactively, I can say that my reasons are are two. One is that I knew I didn't want to keep doing historical American fantasy or like alternate history types things because... um, publishing as a, as a corporate entity would love it if you would keep publishing the same types of books <laughs> because it builds like a, a continuous audience. But the danger there is that then you're not allowed to like break out of that. And I was like, Ooh, I've done two. And now I need to like make some elbow room for myself unless I want to be the historical fantasy author forever. And I just don't have that kind of attention span. So I knew I wanted to kind of make some elbow room. And then the other thing is that I knew I wanted to do my Kentucky book, my Southern Gothic And I have, you know, a number of bones to pick with the ways that the American South is depicted in fiction and in film. And one of them is that it is caught in a sort of an eternal past, right? Like the South as an idea sort of seems to end around, oh, I don't know, the 1950s, early 1960s, right at about the civil rights movement. And there's this sort of dangerous nostalgia to that and there's a desire to equate it with this sort of like noble white poverty that we imagine from that era that is looks very very different now and so I didn't want it to be that kind of a novel I wanted it to be more like my own childhood 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so for most of the novel, we're following Opal, who is definitely living sort of in poverty um, and is very much like a contemporary character. If we look at like the ways that class exists in this book, she's navigating it in a very sort of contemporary American setting, right? She can't get full-time work as a cashier because then they would have to give her benefits, those kinds of things. So how sort of what role does Opal play like when you're thinking about her as this protagonist in this kind of Southern Gothic novel? Yeah. I mean, again, like I'm always thinking about like the cliches I want to avoid in tandem with what I want to do artistically. There's all this stuff I don't want to do. And I think Southern poverty, Southern white poverty looks very particular ways. Again, it looks like in the past, um, it often looks like, you know, poor peasant folk in the hills or something. And that's not, you know, like I grew up hovering around the poverty line in Kentucky. As an adult, I was a, like post-college actually, I was a tractor supply cashier working part-time, not able to get benefits. Like I lived this life and I wanted it to be very clear. Like this is a Southern Gothic, but it is a Southern Gothic with cell phones. And like there is, I, I also kind of wanted to take a little bit of the idealism or the shine of the cinder or the cinderella storiness out of poverty you know like it's familiar and it's grinding and it's very boring (laughs) and it's very exhausting is what i wanted it to be yeah absolutely um the sort of central defining relationship in opal's life at least since the death of her mother like about 10 years before the novel starts is with her younger brother jasper who is much younger than her, is again 10 or 11 years younger than her, um, and is at a really interesting point because at this point he's 16, which um, as an educator, I'm very biased towards teenagers, but is I think just such an interesting point where she has a perception of him that is really important for her as a caretaker and as a person who's like really reliant on this relationship for her own sense of self, but he's also like a 16-year-old and so he needs a sense of responsibility and autonomy. Um, and that relationship also has this element of both like the siblingness and also the fact that like she's a decade older than him, she is responsible for him. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that relationship and its role in the book. Yeah, um, I, I mean, not to be like, this is all literally me, but like I have two younger brothers who are much younger than me. Um, they're like eight years younger than me. And I feel overly maternal, unnecessarily maternal towards them, even now, I think, which they have always not loved. (laughs) But I am unable to stop myself. Even now they live um, across the street from me. I like found the rental and I was like, this is where you guys should live. (laughs) And I I helped them fill out the application. So I I am still doing the thing that Opal is desperately trying to learn not to do, um, which is just try and be a surrogate parent to people who are actually rapidly becoming adults. Um, so there's like all this personal stuff in it too, but there's also like, I, you know, sibling relationships are not always done in ways that feel realistic, particularly in genre. I feel like they can become sort of symbols. Like, um, like I love the hunger games book, but you have this often the younger sibling is like this pure object that is to be protected and, and coddled and provides a lot of useful motivations and plot things to happen for the protagonist. But it was really important for me that like what if they were actually two autonomous people who were negotiating relationship and that her idealized vision of him as this thing that needs to be coddled is ultimately false (laughs) yeah absolutely 
Well, I think the interesting thing about siblings, especially when you have such a large gap as well, is that in many ways you've had like the same life and then also radically different lives and that they've experienced almost all of the same things, but they were very different ages. They're different genders. They're different races. And so all of these things shape the fact that even though they like live their whole life in the same room, essentially, their experience of that is so different. And I feel like that comes across so well in the novel. So Eden is obviously a huge part of this novel, um, but also the titular Starling House, which is sort of at the center of it, is very much there as well. I've heard this described as like a haunted house book and all of these things. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Starling House itself and what kinds of things you wanted to include or not include in that manner. Yeah, the house is tricky. (laughs) The house is the fundamental genre confusion of this book in one object. So the genre confusion is that in a Southern Gothic or in a horror, the house is bad, um, just malevolent. Um, And I think that's for a bunch of different reasons that I think are very neat and very crunchy. So like houses function so well as a literary symbol because the Southern Gothic is, is very concerned with what we have inherited you know, the sins of our past and of our forefathers and all that stuff. And what better symbol than the house that we literally inherit from the people before us? So it's a really generational effective thing. It symbolizes wealth very well, like a large house in the South really only comes from one type of money, uh, depending on its age. Um, And so like, there's all this sort of sinisterness baked into it. But the problem with me is that only about half of my writing and reading comes from the gothic the other half comes from fantasy and fairy tales you know and so like in a fairy tale the house the sentient house is often not malevolent at all it's sort of a pseudo caretaker figure like think about um beauty and the beast every version of that that house is sort of helping her sort of caretaking sort of like staffed with invisible servants um or baba yaga's hut even that's walking around or howl's moving castle like there's houses that have this like personality and whimsy to them that is not ultimately evil and starling house is both of those together (laughs) um which i think the whole book is sort of stuck in that in between um a gothic and a fairy tale (laughs) which i think is one of the things that for me at least is so fun about it Um, And we have two point of view characters in this novel. So we have Opal, and then we also have some of Arthur Starling's point of view as well. And they both have very different relationships to the house. I think it's fair to say that really sort of encapsulates that duality that you were talking about. And it's also so much fun because it's a lot of like that POV overlap where you get to see the way that they're feeling about like the house, but also each other. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of that process of writing these two characters that are experiencing sort of the same things, but also not. Yeah. You know who does that amazingly? Romance writers. They've got this figured out. Like the fun of POV switching between two people who are experiencing more or less the same events is not necessarily something that I learned from fantasy as a genre or horror as a genre, But romance writers, they're scientists of this. It's amazing. And I've read so many paperback romances in the last two years. It's crazy. It's wild. Um, And so I wanted like some of that emotional satisfaction that you get 
in a romance book where you get to see like this is her experiences of it she's making these assumptions about him and then there's his assumptions about her and like the flipping between them is really fun however uh it was not fully a romance novel so she's in first person he's in third um and he gets you know maybe i think it's like 15 percent compared of the narrative compared to her so it's heavily weighted towards her because i wanted it to ultimately not be it's not fully genre wise and trope wise a romance but i I loved playing with that well this novel is just existing at sort of the intersection of all of these different genres in a way that was so fun sales and marketing people just sort of like put their heads on the desk and weep and i think that's totally fair sorry for all the marketing people but yeah Yeah. i'm sorry the next one is worse sorry guys But there is, I think, such a fun interplay. And as someone that really loves um, fantasy and horror both and that is really interested in the gothic, I think that the tension between all of those genres and the tension of expectation as well is one that you play with really well in this novel and that is just really fun to see. We also have uh, a book within a book in this story. So we have The Underland, which is essentially... I think of it a little bit like one of those children's books that children find very affirming and adults find very upsetting. Exactly. Um, Yes. (laughs) Which is, I think, one of my favorite things about children's literature, honestly, is like the nature of being a child is inherently disturbing because you don't really know what's going on and you don't have any power um, in a way that adults, I think, find disquieting and that children just has to, to sort of like live in conversation with. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the underland and the role of fake children's literature in this novel. I mean, partly this is just a me problem at this point. I think most of my works have had some sort of book within a book scenario. Like I was describing my next book to my husband and he was like, Oh, so it's a basic galaxy hero (laughs) plot. There's this girl who finds this book. (laughs) And I was like, ouch. True though. Um, And I think that's obviously just because like my experience of my own life is one that is so informed by the narratives that shape me that I'm just like fundamentally interested in like how narratives um, pile up on each other. And I love to play with that in books. Um, But so this one I wanted to be exactly what you described. One of those like slightly disturbing old novels that at the time was not perceived as literature was maybe even concerning to people, but then later kind of had like cult following. Um, And I feel like there's a few examples of those from like the Victorian era when children's publishing was so moralizing and so puritanical and like the function of children's publishing was to create good moral citizens and good citizens of the empire and like men conforming to particular standards of women to others, you know, so it's like teaching gender and race and power and all these things. But then there are these like you know, weirdo artists and the Edward Gorys of the world who were just doing much darker and more interesting and more fantastic things with children's imaginations. And so, like, I wanted it to be one of those. (laughs) There's also, like, this really gorgeous and vaguely creepy art in the book that at least I imagine is in the style. Is it the style of... Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, so what's weird, what's crazy is that the artist is Ravina Kai, And she's one of my favorite living artists in the world. That is just her style. It's often grayscale. It's a lot of pencil sketching. It's very flowing and very dreamy. And it's gorgeous. I love it. Um, And so 
in my little Pinterest board of this book, it was just full of her art, particularly she did the illustrated edition, I think for Folio Society of Wuthering Heights. So I had all of her illustrations from Wuthering Heights as like inspiration. And then there's a fake Wikipedia page in this book. And Mm -hmm. I included her name as if she were influenced by this made up picture book that I had invented. Um, Just because I was like, I love her style so much. And then later in the process, much later, when Tor was like, hey, surprise, we might be able to budget for an illustrator. Who would you like? Do you have anyone in mind? I was like, oh my gosh, I do. (laughs) So it kind of became a circular thing that Ravina Kai ended up doing the illustrations. (laughs) And they are really gorgeous. They're amazing. It's super cool. It's super fun. You also, you mentioned the fake Wikipedia articles. There's like a lot of intertextual elements of this story. We have footnotes, which is um, one of my very favorite things that can exist in a fantasy novel is footnotes. And there's also just a lot of concern about like documentation and sourcing, who has access to what documents and what stories uh, is really central. We have sort of the story of Starling House being told multiple times and the sourcing and the context around that is like really important in terms of like who is telling the story, what is their motivation. And that I think is something that especially if we're thinking about like the Southern United States or just sort of like history and legacy generally is such an important and compelling thing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that like historical nature of this very contemporary story. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a me problem. I have my master's in history. I at one point was like, I'm going to be a historian. Um, And so I have, of course, some concerns with like sources and archives and how we assemble archives and what we consider historical sources and that kind of a thing. But also specifically with the South, um, I think when you look at the Southern Gothic as a genre, there are at least two, generally more, very distinct images of what the South is. There's some that are written as horror, and there are some that are written with nostalgia. And you can guess which two groups those come from, which two types of authors those come from. Um, And I wanted, you know, as a white Southerner, to find ways to let the horror in and find ways to let some of my own love of my home come through as well. And that to me became kind of a collage, which I think is closer to how historical narratives are built. You know, that's not so much, it's very satisfying in like movies and books when they're like, here's the lie version and here's another lie. And then haha, and they kind of pull off the sheet and they're like, here's the actual truth of what happened. And I wanted some of that because there are narratives that are truer than others. But I also wanted the sense that all of these truths kind of lie together according to who's telling them. Um, not necessarily equally, but concurrently. And and I ended up with this messy shambling collage narrative. <laughs> yeah, well, and so much of it is surrounding um, Eleanor Starling, who is essentially the original Starling, right? Like it's her house, the Underlands is her book. And I think that especially if we're thinking about like women in historical settings, and especially if you're thinking about like sort of like a small town situation where she's kind of arguably the biggest, certainly one of the biggest figures in that town, there's so much myth and legacy and retelling that comes up. And this novel just does a really good job of capturing that and of capturing, I think, how we speak about um, powerful women in particular in a way that is really interesting. 
Yeah, she's complicated for me. This was became a more complicated project than I originally thought because I've kind of become a little dissatisfied with narratives that are just like, there was this woman who was really just like fighting for herself and she did nothing wrong, but everyone maligned her and called her a witch. There's a satisfaction in that narrative, right? Because it's sort of a redemption of the witch figure or whatever, and I like it. But it doesn't necessarily always align with how I see power and white femininity being deployed, both in the past and in the present. And so I wanted her to be like, um, not a pure victim, I guess. I didn't want it to be like, she has no blame and she has no real agency. And she was just like, they told lies about her because they couldn't handle how cool and awesome and powerful she was. I wanted to give her a real darkness and anger and kind of a selfishness, like that she is not out there striking blows for justice. She is motivated by something much more personal and vengeful. Well, and she exists in the context of her society. And that's the thing where whenever you have like, any of the legacies happening, any sort of like power imbalance or injustice, like those shape the way that people move through the world, especially people with power. Mm -hmm. We also have sort of the other big thing happening in Eden is our power company um, that again has sort of ties going back. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, especially in sort of the context of writing like a contemporary novel. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up in Kentucky. This is set in Western Kentucky in a in a kind of distinct coal region where it's a coal field is in Muhlenberg County. But I, my family is half of them are from far Eastern Kentucky, like Lawrence County. Um, I don't know why I'm specifying this. For Kentucky listeners, don't worry. I know where the coal is. <laughs> the fields are very different. Um, <laughs> um, but it has both touched my family personally, you know, like my grandfather I never met because he was killed by a coal train. My great-grandfather I never met because he was killed by a coal truck. I've had family in mines. Um, I've also lived in areas where the water quality is still very low because of the coal power plants down the street. You know, like whenever we visited my great-grandma, you really would have to wipe your windshield off before you left because the fly ash would be so thick that you couldn't see. And so like, there's no way I was going to write a Kentucky book that didn't have coal in it and didn't have coal companies in it. Um, and it became like very satisfying to see how many true things I could weave into the fictional history of Eden. So like, I'm sorry, this is going to be a whole thing. It's going to take me a minute. If you are familiar with John Prime, (laughs) one of America's great singer songwriters, he has his first hit, I think in 1974 was called Paradise. And it is about the town of Paradise, Kentucky, in Muhlenberg County. This is why this is what I based Eden off of. You see my cleverness here, Eden Paradise. Um, and that town, the town of Paradise, existed until coal was discovered nearby. And then the TVA built the largest ever at the time coal-fired power plant right next to Paradise. And within, I think, seven years, they were forced to relocate the entire town and bulldoze the remains because the air and water quality were so toxic that they couldn't live there, even by, what was it, like 1969 standards. So I imagine it was horrible. (laughs) Um, And that town no longer exists. I think all that is left is a graveyard, which is a great ecological fable. It was a great song. John Prine is amazing. It became sort of this like memorable tale of like a lost Eden. And that is what I was basing this story on. It's almost like what if Paradise Kentucky had survived and what would it look like now? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of still staying in Muhlenberg County, we have a library that's quite central. And I feel like there are often libraries and librarians in a lot of your work. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of libraries. Yeah, what's funny is I wish I could tell like a very nostalgic story about like, ah, my childhood library in Kentucky, but it was crap. It was terrible. It's gotten much better. But when I was a kid, it was very much like, you know, tiny, mostly Christian literature. It smelled heavily of cigarette smoke and I didn't go there very often. And my school library was like one of those ones that was like, you know, taking Harry Potter off the shelves and refusing to let anybody check out books above their grade level. So I had a very sad experience with actual libraries as a kid, but I loved the way they seemed to be in books. They seemed very magical. The idea of a library seemed very magical to me. Um, and then as I got older and moved around and I got to, you know, I had library cards in every state for a while that we'd lived in. And um, then my husband got a job at our local library in Kentucky as like the children's programming assistant. And it was just like, everything that I'd wanted libraries to be when I was young. And so I could not help but make it like this magical, safe place in a very rural, very conservative, very downtrodden space. There are these institutions and these people who are wonderful. Well, and Charlotte, who is our librarian, I think is in such an interesting space as well. And this is something I think you'll often get with sort of like government employees, especially I feel like in rural American settings, where she is very much like there as this foundational element of the community. But she's also an outsider. And because you don't have like a ton of economic opportunity in Eden, she's in many ways like sort of the outsider in a lot of ways as well. And so I just Charlotte was a really interesting character. To mm. me, and that was Don't a dynamic. Don't you love that in Kentucky, in a small town, you're an outsider. You're also from Kentucky, but you're from like three hours away. Wow. So you don't know. You're not from here and you never really will be. Um, yeah. And she's also openly queer, um, yeah. which was important to me because I encountered the reality as I left rural Kentucky that people assume it is impossible to be queer or that it is all closeted and all completely hidden. And that is simply not my experience. People carve spaces for themselves everywhere and always have. Well, and I think that's something, um, especially when people think about the South and the rural South in particular, is that they assume that queer people, yeah, like you were saying, essentially like don't exist or existing in this like very closeted space. Or they must be desperate to run. Right. Like there, there is no staying, there is no acceptance. There's no level of happiness that you could achieve as a rural queer person in the South. And I just, I don't think that's true. (laughs) And also just that you like don't have any sort of ties to your community as well. And you have several queer characters in this novel and we don't necessarily, there's sort of varying levels of spoilers in terms of like getting into that perhaps. But I was wondering if you could talk just, I mean, you already have, but a little bit about like the importance of like, that variety and how adding those characters in was important. Yeah, I think I I will talk about it, but I actually feel still yeah. a little bit unformed about it and a little um, prickly about it in ways that I, I don't totally talk about publicly. But essentially, one of the things I can find a little bit, not frustrating, but unfulfilling about the ways that popularly marketed queer books work is that they have to follow kind of a formulaic like coming out narrative and that queerness as an identity um, 
tends to trump other experiences that might be happening in novel. This is not universally true, but this is this is often how things are packaged and marketed. Um, and that also has not been my experience of what queerness can look like in different spaces. And and so I am realizing that I am tending to write books where it's casually mentioned, where it exists, but not as the central story and where it doesn't perhaps follow um, broadly accepted narratives of queer life, where there's like a big announcement and there's a coming out and then there's reactions to it. And then there's claiming your space. And then there's like moving to a big city and finding an attractive group of found family people of all your own age and income level. Like those things don't happen. And yet queerness does happen. I know it does in all of these different ways that don't necessarily map perfectly onto our ideas of out or closeted or, um, you know, pride marches and things like that. So I'm trying to just have it be a texture of life as I know it, rather than something that is like clearly marketed with appropriate pins for everyone's alignment, sexualities and identities, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of want to now switch track coming off of that like very important <laughs> point to talk a little bit about cleaning which is a thing that happens <laughs> a lot in this novel um and as a child i was always like so obsessed with the the cleaning of like the magical space that was something that i was just very into as a child and i think that cleaning as a sort of space of like both care and discovery is an interesting thing that exists in genre while also having obviously like huge amounts of class implications and often like gender and other things as well. But Opal spends a large portion of this book cleaning this big fancy house. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about cleaning. Isn't that so interesting? It's so baked into fairy tales and mythology itself, you know, like how is it that one of the Herculean labors is cleaning the stables. That's fascinating to me because it, like as a kid, you're just so much like satisfied by the transformation. Like, you know, the end of the Disney Beauty and the Beast where like the light yeah. goes over the castle and makes it all pretty and nice. And you're like, oh, satisfying. We've achieved something here. Um, I totally agree. There's something like innately satisfying about it. This is the same thing that's appealing about Howl's Moving Castle, watching Sophie <laughs> clean the castle. Um for me, we had bought an abandoned house in rural Kentucky, my husband and I. That's what we did with our savings. Um, this was during the recession. So to be clear, houses, they were just giving them away. Um, and this one had been abandoned for about three years. And so like when we closed on it, it was raining and we walked in and the rain was coming from the second floor all the way down to the first. Like it was a wreck. There were things living in it. Um, it was every... It was not big, so it was not a gothic mansion, but it was falling apart. And so, like, writing the scenes of cleaning with specificity <laughs> added a lot of delight for me. <laughs> well, and I think so much of what's fun, too, is, like, Starling House gets to exist in so many different ways as, like, very much this character, but then also as this, like, physical object that needs repair and needs cleaning and how much does it need that does it really need attention who knows but maybe it's just lonely maybe it's faking it who knows yeah (laughs) but you know there is still a need there whatever the need is um and i really think that that is sort of at the heart of this novel it is such a beautiful intersection of genres and perspectives and of so many things and then it's just like 
sitting in the center of like all of these things that are really close to my heart and that I really loved. <laughs> um, and this is just such a beautiful, wonderful novel. And thank oh, you so much I'm for so writing glad. it. Thank you. That's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> I have been speaking with Alex E. Harrow about her novel Starling House, out now from Tor. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider feeding the algorithms that run our lives by subscribing, leaving a review, all of that stuff. If you are interested in existing outside of the algorithms, consider telling a friend about us IRL. I will speak with you soon, and for now, happy reading. <laughs>